Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. As Phil said earlier, we're going to go through the next series of 10 Psalms this summer. And so we're picking up with Psalm 21. Those of you who are new, our musicians started on a project a couple years ago of putting all of the psalms to music, which means 150, and this will be the third set of 10. So we're on the 21st psalm, and uh, if you don't have uh, copies of the first 20, I encourage you to get them. You can uh, find them online by doing a search for My Soul, S-O-U-L, Among Lions. That's the name of the smaller group of men, the band, that are uh, performing them, and uh, various people in the church are writing them. So this morning we turn to Psalm 21. Psalm 21 is a lot like Psalm 20. They're both uh, psalms that uh, you could imagine being sung on the 4th of July, Obviously not the 4th of July, but nationalistic psalms, country songs, songs of the government, psalms of the king. And this one is for the choir director, a psalm of David. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. O Lord, in your strength, the king will be glad, and in your salvation, how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire. And you have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him. For you made him most blessed forever. You made him joyful with gladness in your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. Though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed. For you will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstrings at their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is the word of the Lord. You remember back in Psalm 20, the statement, some boast Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. And this is the theme also of this psalm. God's our boast, God's our trust, God is is everything. Now this is a psalm of David, and so David, we believe, wrote this psalm. It's, It's possible that it could be attributed to David, but that it could have been written by somebody else, and he brought it into a body of literature that he put his endorsement on. But we believe he wrote it, and it is certainly something that he sang, but also something that he directed for the choir director to lead the people in worship in and to sing themselves. 
And the psalm has application to David and to the kingdom of his time. Uh, You see how central the whole question of the security and blessing of the kingdom and of the king is. Um, Obviously, there are many things in this psalm that are prophetic that point forward to Jesus, the king of kings and lord of lords. And so when you're dealing with any place in the Bible where it talks about a king, where it talks about government rule authority, it's hard to separate it from Jesus Christ. But here, we know this has application to the king at the time as well as to Jesus Christ. And it's fascinating as as you look at this, O Lord, in your strength. It's very interesting that David is singing this, David is worshiping with this, but David refers to himself in the third person. He doesn't say I. He says he. And so, O Lord, in your strength, the king. He's referring to himself, but he says the king. And then a little bit later, he says he about himself. He will rejoice. What David is doing is he's taking the kingdom, and he's getting everybody in the kingdom to worship God by looking at how he worships God, at how dependent he is on God, and at the blessings that God has given him. And so what he's doing is he's reminding the people of God, the Israelites, the sons of Israel, that their welfare is dependent upon his trust in God and God's dealing with him. All right. In other words, the whole psalm depends upon the representational nature of leadership. Okay? The people are in their king, and the king is in God. God blesses the king, and those blessings come to the people. It goes boom, 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 boom. Okay? Now, I won't worry about our Chinese brothers and sisters in Christ this morning because they understand this, but we Americans, well, I should say, okay, no, it's not that we don't understand it. We hate it. We just do not want representatives, you know? We want to directly vote on everything before the House of Representatives and the Senate. We want to make our decisions ourselves. And in the old days before technology, yeah, you had to send somebody to Washington. But that was so infuriating when we're a democracy, you know? And the one thing everybody in the world knows about America is it's a democracy, and forget that part about representative democracy. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, Because the church today, and the conservative church today, the evangelical church, the reformed evangelical conservative, the Bible-believing church today, is filled with people who explicitly repudiate the authority of anybody but Jesus Christ. I am under nobody but Jesus. I will have no head but Christ. I will have no authority but God, right? And it sounds pious, you know. You know, no king but Jesus, and we can all sign on to that, right? But here's the problem. Jesus isn't here. Now, yes, Jesus is here, but 
You remember what John says, and I, I'm going I'm to repeatedly come back to this. John says, how can you say that you love God whom you haven't seen? If you don't love your brother, you hate him whom you have seen. Okay? The exact same thing is true of headship. How can you say that God's your head when you repudiate the headship of your husband? Come on! You can't refuse to submit to the authority of your father and mother and then turn around and say that you have Jesus as your Lord. And the same thing is true of our government. The same thing is true of our state, of our city. The same thing is true of the church. The most scandalous thing in this church all through the years has been the fact that you may not come to the Lord's table unless you are in submission to elders of a church. Okay? And everybody has a fit about this. Bible says, submit to those in authority over you in the Lord, for they keep watch over your soul as men who must give an account. It's a quote from Hebrews. And we hear that, and it goes, and we say, no king but Jesus, I will submit to no man but Christ alone. Right, right, right. And the truth is, you have no submission to Jesus Christ. That's the truth. Once again this week, I was talking to a pastor who had a very conservative, very strong young father, you know, who was absolutely certain that there was no church in the world that was faithful, you know. And finally, he discovered this young pastor in his church. And you know, what they always do to flatter you as a pastor is tell you you're the first pastor who they've ever met who's faithful to Scripture, you know, right? And you just go, yeah, that's what I thought, <laughs> you know. <laughs> now, not me. I didn't think that, but my, this guy I was talking to, this pastor I was talking to. And so the time went on, and, and then this man who this, that, and the other thing, and oh boy, he's just zealous for the Lord and the kingdom of God and the church of Jesus Christ and salvation and gospel and all this stuff, you know, and he knows this and he knows that and he knows the other thing. And all of a sudden, this pastor right? He notices that there's a problem of the leadership of the children in the home. Now, here's an idea. Somebody who only submits to Jesus doesn't exercise authority over his children, right? And so this pastor went to talk to the couple about their training of their kids, right? You know? And then it got to, and that part went fairly well, which is unusual, but the kids are young, you know? And so then it got to the end, and all of a sudden, this pastor said to the man, you know, I have noticed that you don't want to submit to any authority. Ooh. You try to tell a man who's, who's gung-ho for Jesus that he doesn't submit to any authority. It don't go over well. And within a few minutes, he was told to leave Now, this is not a frivolous relationship. This is not something that just, you know, this pastor showed up, knocked on the door of the neighborhood. Can I come in and talk to you about your... No, there was a long relationship here. Listen, John Calvin on this text says, the king is making it very clear to the people that their blessing comes from God through him to the kingdom. And then he says, furthermore, this is teaching us that it is when we are in Christ 
that the blessings of God come to us. So when we accept the fact that God has set up the whole world to be representative, and that we are in our heads, and that we receive both the blessings and curses that our heads deserve, are you with me? Did you see what's coming at the end of the psalm? where it talks about God judging the children of the wicked. It's generational. It's representational. It really does matter. We were uh, up at the hospital this week talking, and it was really awkward because there's this room. And big room, but broken up into little places that were too large for only one family. You know, and so you had to be with groups, and you were so close that it was impossible not to participate or not to hear or not to, you know, enter into the conversation. And uh, and the, during the conversation, uh, uh, the issue of uh, the Marines, the Marines came up and the war in Vietnam. I'll get back to this later. And uh, all of a sudden, they were fully a part of the conversation because he'd been a Marine. And he'd fought. He'd been deployed. And his father had fought in Nam. And all of a sudden, there was great intimacy in that little gathering place there. And you immediately like the guy. He's half Mexican and half Russian. And the minute he said it, I looked at him and I said, yeah, I can see that. You know? And uh, then I found out that his grandfather was, was a peasant who was uh, in danger of being one of the 40 to 60 million that Joseph Stalin murdered. None of you even know about this anymore. And he managed to get the Russian Orthodox Church to, to get him out of the country over to Germany. And then he was sent over to Fort Wayne. And there was a Mexican family that had come up from Mexico. And so a Russian and a Mexican woman married. And his last name was something like Kalishnikov or something like that. I don't know what it was. That was a joke, okay. And they named their child AK-47, you know. (laughs) So anyhow, you talk to him and he starts testifying to God's mercy in his life that God got his grandfather out and that God protected the life of his father over in Nam, who was wounded a number of times, Purple Heart. And then you look at him and you find out that his uh, son has spina bifida and that he's now under the knife for the seventh time. And it's obvious they love their son. They have four children, real young couple. And what do you ask him? What do you ask him? You ask him, do you go to church? Do you have faith? Do you know God? Do you fear God? And they said, no. And then what do you say? (laughs) Well, here's what I said. Oh, no! No! How could you do this? I thought you loved your children. How could you love your children and not go to church? Then they said they were Roman Catholic. They said Catholic. And I said, oh, yeah, I know what that's about. That's not a religion for a Marine. 
He said, yeah, I know, you just sort of do the things. I said, yeah, precisely. <laughs> I said, you're a Marine, you're a man. And you love your children and you stand with your wife as your son is under the knife. And you're telling me that you're not fearful for the souls of your children and leading them to God. People, listen, it's not hard to confess your faith. All you have to do is just like the guy in the room with you and realize he is a father. And what is a father supposed to do? Well, a father's supposed to look at his children and realize that based on his headship of those children, they will either receive every blessing from God or they will be consumed by the wrath of God to the third and the fourth generation. I'm sorry, you don't like that. And I tell you, it's not my job to have you like what I say. My job is to be faithful to the text of Scripture. Okay? And I'm too old to think that I'm going to be famous. Or, well, yeah. There's a mile in between famous and infamous, all right? <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I'm not going to be moving to the east side and building a monument. And this psalm teaches you that you have a head. It is your parents, it is your husband, it is your elders, it is your president, and it is the King Jesus. And without the representation of King Jesus, you are damned forever. Forever. And it doesn't matter what God you name, it doesn't matter what God you come up with, it doesn't matter how pluralistic you are, you know, like Bernie Sanders, who hates God, and who will vote against a man because he believes that there is no salvation out of Jesus Christ and that those who don't believe in Christ will be damned. This is what Bernie Sanders did in front of the whole world this week. Make no mistake at the hearing, okay? He took a Christian who had publicly on his blog said yes to the exclusive salvation in Jesus Christ and he hung them out to dry. And now every Christian in the country knows that they better, we have one more private truth to add to, you know. We, we have the private truths about abortion, the private truths about manhood and womanhood, the private truths about, and now we have the private truth of hell. Don't you dare think it. Because then you might say it, and heaven forbid you put it up on your blog or your Facebook page because that will haunt you the rest of your life. And when you are selected, to be the head of some agency in Washington, you're having a confirmation hearing, and you ever uttered the words of the judgment of God on your blog? Oh, you stupid idiot. Bernie Sanders is going to be there to burn you. The first word of the psalm is what? If you look at how it's printed, the typography, you know what the word is. It's Lord. And you know, that doesn't seem like much until you realize every time it's capitalized, it means Yahweh. It means Jehovah. It is one God revealed to one people 
and that's the Israelites, the Jews. And all the gods of the nations are idols. The Lord made the heavens. Bernie Sanders hates this. He hates the fact that this God will judge him on the basis of his submission and faith in that God's son. Bernie will have his day. But make no mistake about it, the first word is Yahweh. All the gods of the nations are idols. There are people here this morning, as always, who reject the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it, that word at the beginning is not Allah. Okay? It's Yahweh. It's as exclusive and personal and intimate as any name can be. And that is our God. Lord, in your strength, the king will be glad. So David takes delight in the strength of God. It gives him gladness. Not in God cuddling him. Not in God walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. You with me? His strength. You know what I love about certain men? I love their strength. I have a, a video on my computer of David Abazara. That gives you a clue how strong he is. Splitting wood a couple weeks ago. And let me tell you, it just makes me die and go to heaven. I've watched that video I don't know how many times. And I was there when it happened. I took the video. David is a monster of a man. David makes every man here except Dave Carell look pathetic. He's half Arab and half Howley, white. <laughs> okay? And there David was with a mallet. He says his, he, he's, he's, a, he's a certified arborist, so he climbs and takes down very sophisticated trees. So it's a highly skilled job. And he's just done a very good job. But when he got the tree on the ground, he told me his favorite thing about it is splitting the wood. And you watch this dude split wood. It's like, how many of you have seen David Abasara split wood? Well, how would you describe it, Daniel? What would you say? It's like... It's, it's like those huge station wagons that are carrying the dirt along I-69 right now? You know, the station wagons that have big motors in the hubs of the wheels? Well, they're not station wagons, they're earth movers, but you know what I'm talking about, you know? And you look at those things, and, and all you can think, right, is... <laughs> That's David Abasara splitting wood. And in our prayers, how often do we give thanks to God for his strength? <laughs> oh, man, if there's ever an attribute, a perfection, a trait of God that is, that, is, uh, that is an embarrassment to a generation, it's the strength of God to our present generation. Because what? Well, because the strongest man in, in the world today is the man that, that has the best claim on victimhood. <laughs> Did you all watch James Comey? He's got a woman from California facing him down. And she asks him, 
Well, if President Trump was scaring you, remember that? If President Trump was scaring you, then why didn't you just get up and leave? Remember that? Did you hear him? And six foot eight, ramrod straight, firm, head of the FBI, James Comey, says, what? Well, I, I wasn't very strong. <laughs> it's like my life has been leading up to this moment. You know, what on earth is the point of God giving you six foot eight inches? Ramrod straight. Legal training, right? Head of the FBI. Can you imagine what J. Edgar Hoover would have said? <laughs> Listen, God is strong. And that's how the psalm begins. God is not copying a posture of weakness and victimhood, hoping that we'll pity him. David killed his ten thousands. Everything about this psalm and King David is a scandal to us today because we want weakness, because weakness makes us feel less threatened, you know? Everybody's competing with everybody else for the principal victimhood. You know, you get a group of eight together and everybody tries to out-victim each other and talk about their pain. I mean, honestly, this is what our world is. There is nobody who can stand against victimhood today. You all realize this. Every man is taught to show his servant leadership. Now, I'm not against servant leadership if it comes from Jesus. But I found when it comes from other men, it's always, it's always a lie. It's like humble bragging. And David is a man, and he's a man's man, and he starts out by saying, Oh, Lord, in your strength the king will be glad. Do we take joy in God's strength? And in your salvation, how greatly he will rejoice. So David is taking joy in his strength and rejoicing in his salvation. Now, the reason that we don't take joy in God's strength and salvation is that we don't feel we need to be saved from anything. Verse 2, you have given him his heart's desire. Remember I said that David is referring to himself in the third person. You, God, have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. So in other words, what... David is rejoicing in here, and we'll continue into it, but David is rejoicing in the things that he actually asked God for. Remember the, the class on prayer this morning that Stephen was teaching, telling us to go to the Lord in prayer, ask him, cast our cares upon him, knowing he cares for us. So David is a king who is directing his people to worship in such a way that they realize that whatever good they get from David is only because he has gone to God and asked for it. Is this how you lead your family? Is this how you live in your marriage? Is this how you lead your small group? Are you constantly telling everybody that you are nothing and that all you did was ask? That that's the, the largest agency that you have. That's what King David is saying. 
Verse three, for you meet him with the blessings of good things. Now, why does he use the word meet there? You meet him with good things. Have you ever gone to a home and even after you knock, nobody comes? What does that tell you? It tells you that either they're way behind in the prep or you're not real important. But have you ever gone to a home where they've met you at the door or they've met you out on the driveway? You know that you matter to them. And this is how God is with us before we ever ask. He is out there meeting us with what we need. He meets us. He anticipates our needs. That's how much God carries us in his heart. He knows our needs before we ever say anything. He meets us. You see that? You meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. So David, again, is talking about himself, and so the commentators at this point begin to argue about which crown this was and when. Well, that's not the point. The point is that when David was just this nondescript shepherd boy out in the field, and Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel, Samuel went through all the sons, and there was nobody there. And he finally got done. He thought, surely this one and this one and this one. Finally gets through all the sons, and he looks at Jesse. He says, Jesse, you know, don't you have another son? And, and here's David, right? Oh, yeah, there's David. You know, he's out cleaning the stalls. Well, bring him in. And here we read here, David's testimony. And David's testimony is what? You set a crown of fine gold on his head. Nobody's going to resent David having a crown of fine gold on his head. David was the last person in the world who put himself forward for a fine crown of gold, right? He wasn't writing Trump on the front of every building he ever built. Verse 4, he asked life of you, you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. And so we look at that and we think, well, okay, how did David get life and strength of days forever and ever? David died. Well, he died in his old age, number one. Number two, when he died, God said to David about his son, I will be a father to him and he will be my son. So God's favor continued through David and his old age. It continued to Solomon and then... What did it continue to? Well, it continued down the line until you have the genealogies of Jesus at the beginning of the gospel. And there, the Davidic, the David line continues, right? And so, to this day, you and I are descendants of David. And Jesus is in the lineage of David, and Jesus' kingdom will reign forever and ever. (coughs) And so it's true of David that today he lives on and he will live on forever through his descendant, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. (coughs) Then he says, verse 5, His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him. Do you see how David is not owning any of this himself? Do you see that? He's speaking about himself in the third person, number one, but then number two, 
it's clear that David is, is not trying to impress upon the people that he's an important person. Every single thing in this, he's pointing to God. David is nothing. God is everything. Verse 6, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. So all of the things that David was given, think of them all. It didn't mean anything to him compared with the presence of God. We can have an unbelievable amount of wealth. We can have a, a good marriage. We can have children. We can have a job we enjoy. Good food, flowers and tomatoes. We can have an unbelievable amount of stuff. Thank you, Mark. He met him with water. You know? Thank you. But without the presence of the Lord, it's nothing. So how do we get the presence of the Lord? Well, the only way to get the presence of the Lord is to confess our sins and repent and ask to be washed with Jesus, with his blood. That's it. It's very humbling. And most people today... Most people today, to avoid doing that, go the multicultural route that Bernie Sanders took, you know, where you say, well, what makes your religion better than mine? What makes your God better than mine? And what is the answer that Christians give to that? Our answer is all the gods of the nations are idols. The Lord made the heavens and the earth. Don't you remember what the Apostle Paul said in the Areopagus in Athens? If anybody had the right God, it was Athens. They had gods everywhere. And it was there that he said that he, his God, set the boundaries of all men. That in him we live and move and have our being. It could not have been more exclusive how the Apostle Paul proclaimed Jesus Christ. And there could never have been a more sophisticated city. It was multicultural out the nostrils. And he proclaims the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. I said in the first service, and I think I'll repeat it today, or here, that, you know, I spent a lot of my youth going to concerts, buying albums, and then they all got stolen, so I started all over again. And there really is only one rock and roll star that I have ever hoped would have faith in Jesus Christ, and that's Eric Clapton. And a good re part of that is uh, just the sweetness of his grief at, at the death of his son. But another part of it is his song, Presence of the Lord. 
I have finally found a way to live in the presence of the Lord. We should pray and ask God to show himself to Clapton. And what a sweet thing for King David to say, all the things he had in this world, all the blessings and treasures. And he says, you make him joyful with gladness in your presence. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. He saw the face of God. Verse 7, for the king trusts in the Lord... That's Yahweh, it's the nation's personal God. And through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. So here we have a transition verse. And we have an indication from the word shaken that we're about to get shaken. Okay? So look at verse 8. Your hand will find out all your enemies. And then he escalates to what? To the right hand. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. Now, the problem with this half of the psalm is that it's half the psalm. And this is typical of the prayers of the godly, that they don't stop thanking God that he's a velveteen rabbit to them, but they move on and thank God that he's a tiger and a cougar and a leopard, and a lion, and a hyena to the wicked. Okay, do you see this? The Bible is never absent from the wicked who hate God and who will be judged. And in America today, because weakness and victimhood is the ultimate value, we don't rejoice in God's judgment and punishment of the wicked. Because everybody's a victim. You know, the reason they're not Christians is they did not have a a godly grandmother like I had, you know? And so they really don't deserve to be judged, and they don't hate God. They just don't make good choices. You all hear that? You know, everybody talks about he made some bad choices. That's the most moral agency you can have in a victimhood culture. Well, the poor guy didn't have a public school teacher to help him learn how to make good choices, you know? And, and that's the worst we ever say about somebody. People in prison just somehow, you know? I mean, you know what I mean, right? Right? You all there? They just somehow never had anybody teach them poor things how to make right choices, right? Are we all together now or are we not? Do I have to stop and keep hitting this or are you going to nod your head and I can move on? Okay, good, I'll move on. Everybody's relieved, thank you. All right. So here's the question for us. Who in your life right now hates God? See, it's just, it's hard to be hypothetical about Scripture. Scripture is not uh, something... uh, written that doesn't have application in your life. So when the Bible says they hate God, God's right hand is going to deal with those who hate God, we should be able immediately to recognize that there are people who hate God, right? And then if somebody says to us, who do you know who hates God? You should immediately be able to come up with your husband. 
Okay. Okay. I mean, you and me here, us together, us. You know? Us. There's nobody here who hates God, you know. We all know that. Present company accepted, you know? Not, not any of you. Okay. So if your husband isn't here, he might hate God. But if he shows up, he doesn't hate God, right? Okay, what about your son? No, no, no! He prayed the sinner's prayer during vacation Bible school. Okay, not your son. Even if he isn't here, not your son, because mothers love their sons, right? Right? Okay, what about your grandmother? Oh, no, no, no! Her husband was awful to her. Okay, we'll cut your grandma some slack. Okay. Okay. So how about your next-door neighbor? Does your next-door neighbor hate God? No, he just never learned to make good choices. Okay, not your next-door neighbor. How about your hairdresser? No. He's my hairdresser. Okay, he doesn't hate God. All right, okay. How about Donald Trump? How about President Obama? Do they hate God? Well, you know, I've kind of wondered about that. Oh, all of a sudden, you have the ability of coming up with somebody that hates God as long as they're thousands of miles away from you and and rich and famous. But anybody who is small and poor and, you know, they don't hate God. Listen, what's my point? Well, my point is that if David, in writing this worship, this musical worship, is celebrating the right hand of God's dealing with those who hate God, this should be a comfort to us, and we should have God-haters that come to mind, that it gives us great relief bordering on joy to realize that there's a day coming when God's right hand will deal with them. You cannot love God's love without loving his wrath. You can't do it. God is not have like a, you know, a two-personality thing going on in the Old Testament. The Old Testament's wrathful, New Testament, it's, it's warm and cuddly, and, and this is Old Testament psalm, so his right hand deals with the people that hate him, but in the New Testament, let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone and judge not lest you be judged. And Jesus loved people. You must take comfort in the fact that God's right hand deals with those who hate him because you are surrounded with people that hate God. Come on. Come on. As a matter of fact, let me tell you this. Until God's Spirit came inside you and changed you, you hated God. Stephen this morning was talking about prayer in our Sunday school class. It was wonderful. If you weren't there, you missed it. 
And he talked about how none of us want to pray. Why don't we want to pray? Well, for me, I don't know about you, but for me, one of the main reasons is I don't want to have to depend on God. I want to be self-reliant. Why do I want to be self-reliant? Why don't I rejoice to be dependent on God? Why don't I take everything to him? There must be something in me that is resistant to God, if not hating him. You know, I have noticed a lot of times when I'm needing something that I don't want to ask God for, it angers me to have to ask him for it, right? Have you ever noticed that? Like, for instance, when I was in Wisconsin, we were, we were really poor, and we needed some more money, and I had this thing that <clears throat> I was just angry about it. And I remember going down to who ran the True Value, owned it, and he was my dear brother in Christ who wasn't at our church, and we ran a youth group together. And I remember going into the back room where we'd eat lunch and where we would talk, and I just let loose with, I just told him how it was so, I was so angry that I was so about money, you know, and couldn't, you know, and told me, don't worry about it, trust God. And, you know, that just doesn't do anything for me. You know, when a guy says, don't worry about money and trust God, I've never found that that's helpful. <laughs> so then I was angry at God and, <laughs> you know, but I loved God and I love, but you know what I'm saying, I was angry. And I remember walking back to my office, and when I got to my office, I was just angry. Why was I angry? Well, because I didn't want to ask God to provide. Why didn't I want to ask God to provide? Listen, you are not naturally a lover of God. All of us are lovers of ourselves, and all of us want to be independent of needing anything and anyone. All of us want to be masters of our universe. And yes, women and men have different ways of being masters of their universe. I am aware of this. But one thing they share is that they want to be masters of their universe. Listen, the world is filled with God-haters. And they're to be pitied because they will become consumed by the right hand of God. Think of the right hand of David Abbasara, and then think of God. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will devour them. Remember Bernie Sanders this week in the hearing in the Senate? He's grilling a Christian whether he believes that Muslims will be damned. Does he believe in the doctrine of hell? And now all the legal experts are debating whether or not Bernie Sanders is right or wrong to vote against him because he believes in the doctrine of hell. 
Now, that's, that's pretty obvious, right? But it's okay. It's Bernie Sanders. He's a Democrat. He's a liberal Democrat. And he's in Washington. Let me read to you how a Christian responded in public, right? So Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont pressed Russell Vogt, nominated by President Trump to be deputy director of the OMB, about his beliefs. Quote, do you think that people who are not Christians are condemned? And he asked this of the man over and over and over again, repeatedly. And he said that if he believed that, that he was Islamophobic. You know, homophobic, Islamophobic. All right? What Vote had written that caused Sanders to ask this on his blog is he said, quote, Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned. It's almost a direct quote of Jesus' own testimony in Scripture. So then Sanders said, do you believe people in the Muslim religion stand condemned? What about Jews? Do they stand condemned too? And what did Vogt say? Vogt said, I'm a Christian. (laughs) Sanders, with his voice rising, said, I understand you're a Christian. And then NPR adds the senator is Jewish, and it said he's not particularly religious. Okay, which is a very helpful clarification. So Sanders, with his voice rising, and that's what NPR says, all right, I understand you're a Christian, but there are other people who have different religions in this country and around the world in your judgment. Do you think that people who are not Christians are going to be condemned? Vote responded, I believe that all individuals are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect regardless of the religious beliefs. But then he also emphasized, quote, the centrality of Jesus Christ in salvation. All right, you with me? At which point Sanders said, quote, this nominee is really not someone who this country is supposed to be about. So they went to Russell Moore, the Southern Baptist spokesman. And here's what Moore said, and this is the reason I'm reading it. I'm not reading it because of Sanders. Sanders is boring. He just had the stupidity to say out in public what everybody thinks anyhow, okay? Which is somebody who believes in hell isn't civilized. They didn't have a public school education, you know? And so... Russell Moore commented about this when they asked him, and he said that Sanders' comments, quote, were breathtakingly audacious and shockingly ignorant, unquote. Quote, this is not some arcane or obscure private opinion being held by this one individual. The language that Senator Sanders finds so disturbing stands condemned as language right out of the New Testament. Quote, in Christian theology, no one is righteous before God. Evangelical Christians don't believe that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Christians believe that all of humanity is fallen. Now, people, do you recognize 
that the thing that's not said by the spokesman for the SBC is what? What Sanders was talking about was what? Well, listen to what David says. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will devour them, okay? Listen, it's the Bible. How have we gotten to the point where we cannot repeat what the Bible says? We're paid to be a spokesman in Washington, D.C., And what he ends up saying is, well, a lot of people have that same belief and it comes out of the Bible. Don't be so ignorant, you know. But what about hell? What about hell? What about fire? What about judgment? Well, well, listen to Calvin on this. (coughs) Calvin says this. He says, we know that judgment has has been committed to Christ. Just a second, I might be reading the wrong place. Yeah, listen to this. He's commenting on this statement about the the fire and the oven. And he says this. He says, It does not seem to me to be out of place to suppose that in the last clause there is denounced against the enemies of Christ a destruction like that which God in old times sent upon Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, That punishment was a striking and memorable example above all others of the judgment of God against all the wicked, or rather it was, as it were, a visible image upon earth of the eternal fire of hell, which is prepared for the reprobate. And hence, this similitude is frequently to be met with in the sacred scriptures. Now, what's he saying? What he's saying is he believes that this reference to the oven and to the fire is an allusion to that, that that here the psalmist is reminding the people of Sodom and Gomorrah being consumed with fire and brimstone. Then he says, this is helpful, all right? Because God sent Sodom and Gomorrah so that all through history, men would know what was coming with hell. Okay? And then he says, that's why all through Scripture, again and again and again, there are references to Sodom and Gomorrah in Scripture. Okay, now, is he right or wrong? Unquestionably, he's right. Scripture, first God did it, and he did it here, and it's a picture of there, okay? And none of us can escape it. Then he says, this here is a reference, you know, oven, fire, burning, right? Then he says, this is all through Scripture that God reminds us of Sodom and Gomorrah because he wants us to keep in mind hell, right? He says, this is helpful, Now, why is it helpful? Well, it's helpful because it makes us flee the wrath to come. And this is a wonderful motivation. (laughs) It is wonderful to flee judgment to Jesus Christ because he saves. 
You have heard the joyful sound, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Right? And so why do you want to be saved? You remember earlier I said we don't take any joy in the judgment because we don't feel we need to be saved. Well, we do need to be saved. What did the Apostle Paul tell the Athenians? You need to be saved. You remember how the Apostle Paul ended his sermon to the Athenians in the Areopagus? You remember? Look at, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 17. I know, I've never said that before. Because it's usually up on the wall. But here at the end of his sermon, here's what he says on Mars Hill. He says this. And remember, these people were unbelievably sophisticated, wealthy, smart, philosophical. And at the end, he says, therefore, this is the end of the sermon. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, this is Athens, this is Oxford, this is Cambridge, this is Bloomington. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He is proclaiming the judgment of God as the gospel, as the good news. Why? Well, because God has ordained the right hand the strong right hand of God in judgment. He has ordained Sodom and Gomorrah. He has ordained the oven and the fire to drive us in terror to the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you know one thing? I love John Piper, okay? But you know what I can't stand about him? All the pastors today think that the only way that you can possibly have good motivation to come to holiness, to do what's right, to produce fruit, that the only possible motivation that a Christian should have is motivation of joy and gratitude. And so everything with John Piper is happy, happy, clappy, clappy, happy, happy, you know. And you listen to his language, it's flowery, and it's like, right? Listen. There is nothing wrong with the motivation of fear to drive you to holiness. Because Hebrews says that without holiness, no man will see God. And it's written to Christians. So apparently God thinks fear is helpful to us. <laughs> you know, And I have noticed with myself that fear is very helpful. There are a lot of things that I never would have done from joy. <laughs> there are a lot of things I would have done if it hadn't been for fear. Are you all with me? Isn't it good to fear God? Isn't it a horrible thing when the Apostle Paul writes in Romans, there is no fear of God before their eyes. I remember telling me about when he had cancer the second time. It's one of my favorite stories. He probably doesn't even remember it. And he's in the hospital and he's hovering between death and life. How old were you? 20, 24. Like all of us had sinned. And when he got cancer and was hovering between life and death, he said that that was a precious gift from God because it drove his soul back to God. Why? Because God was cuddling him? 
Well, in one sense, you can refer to suffering and cancer as God's cuddling. It's the cuddling that a father gives his child after the spanking. And boy, it's such a testimony to the mercy of God and his judgment to watch what children do when you spank them. Because unless you have a really sick and twisted relationship with your children, or you don't know how to discipline them, or you have never, I mean, there are a lot of reasons this might not work. But normally, when a Christian father spanks his children, that is the warmest, most loving time in his relationship with his child. I know a lot of you are thinking that's wacko, but that's what he's talking about. He's in the bed. He's hovering between life and death, and he loves God because who, who else is he going to go to? God alone has the words of eternal life, right? We all understand that. We all know how much the fear of God is what we've needed. Now, there's one other thing, two other things, one brief and the other just real short that I want to comment on before we're done, okay? One of the things is, um, well, I've got to end this by saying this. Do you ever bring up Sodom when it comes to homosexuality? Be, be honest with me. Do you ever refer to it as sodomy anymore? You know that it's been called sodomy for over 2,000 years. It kind of makes sense it's called sodomy, doesn't it? Because it reminds those tempted by sodomy to flee sodomy because of Sodom. And because of what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen, have faith for Scripture and God's judgment as you love homosexuals. Okay? Would you please stop trying to make yourself all nicey-nice? Because all you're showing is you have no love for people tempted by same-sex intimacy. Do you understand that? You're just showing that you love the, the, the acceptance of the world more than you love souls. I'm not saying that every time you have to say Sodom, Sodomy, Sodom, Sodom. There's something in between never saying it and always saying it, right? Okay, now, listen to this. He then goes on and he says, The Lord will swallow him up in his wrath, fire will devour him. And then verse 10, Their offspring you will destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. Remember in the Sunday school class last week, I was talking about how God promises that he will be a God to our children. You remember that? God also promises that he will visit his wrath upon the descendants of the evil. That there is a causal connection, you see this here, between the wicked and their descendants that the judgment of God follows along. Now listen to what Calvin says about this. It's very helpful, all right? He says, David amplifies the greatness of God's wrath from the circumstances that it shall extend even to the children of the wicked. It is a doctrine common enough in Scripture that God not only inflicts punishment upon the first originators of wickedness, but makes it even to overflow into the bosom of their children. Then this explanation he says, as the seed of the ungodly whom he has deprived of his grace are accursed, and as all are by nature children of wrath, devoted to everlasting destruction, he is no less in exercising his severity towards the children than towards the fathers, 
Who can lay anything to his charge? Now, who is he quoting there? Come on, who's he quoting? Who can lay anything to his charge? He's quoting the Apostle Paul in Romans, where the Apostle Paul says, you're going to accuse God of evil? You're going to lay something as a charge against God? He says, who can lay anything to his charge if he withholds from those who are unworthy of it the grace which he communicates to his own children? How can you accuse God of evil if he withholds from the children of the wicked the grace that he gives to the children of the righteous? Now, let me ask you, what did you do to deserve the grace that comes to the children of the righteous? Come on. Nothing. In other words, God is the giver of salvation. He is grace by nature is unmerited favor. And so God can give this to anybody he wants, and nobody has any claim to it. You can't work real hard to get God to pour out his grace upon you and your children. But once God does that, it is so abounding, the grace, that it spreads through the descendants. And when God judges the wicked, it also spreads to their descendants. Now, what's the perfect proof of this? Are you ready? Our first father, Adam. How do you explain your propensity to sin, your bondage to the fall? It's because of your father, Adam. Have you ever met him? No. Well, why should you be blamed? Because that's how God set it up. Federal heads, representation. Remember how we started? And this is God's prerogative. He says, In both ways, he shows how dear and precious to him is the kingdom of Christ, first in extending his mercy to the children of the righteous, even to a thousand generations, and secondly, in causing his wrath to rest upon the reprobate, even to the third and fourth generation. You see why I said to this man, how can you not be taking your children to God? Do you love your children? Do you know what is at stake? Now, the final thing is verse 12. For you will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstrings at their faces. I have been reading a book at night before I go to sleep, and the title of the book is uh, We Were Soldiers Once and Young. Any of you read it? It's an account of the first battle between the Viet Cong and the general army forces in Vietnam. And it was back in 1965, and uh, the, the larger battle was called the Battle of Ai Drang. And the particular battle I've been reading about is the battle centered on landing zone X-ray, LZ X-ray. And it's, uh, the book is an account written by Harold Moore, who was a lieutenant general over the forces. And the fascinating thing is that at this landing zone, where the, the, the death and, and destruction was awful. It was absolutely awful. And uh, the testimony of everybody there is how good soldiers the Viet Cong were. They were unbelievably good. Why? Well, because the vast majority of people who were wounded and killed 
the wounds were to their heads. You all still with me? You want to take a man out, you shoot at his head. Listen, this is our God. He means business with the wicked. And so you fear him. You teach your children to fear God. Because the Bible's testimony is that he shoots at their heads. Come on. Listen, none of us deserve anything good from the hand of God. And so we put ourselves on our knees before him. We don't stand and we plead with him because we don't deserve anything good from his hand. And we sing about it. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God to all those who believe. Okay? This is our God. Don't patronize him. Don't lie about him. Because he's given us David Abbasar as a testimony. You don't want David Abbasar to split you with his mallet. Do you understand me? And that's just an infinitely small taste of the wrath of God. And the final verse is what? It's right after, shot to the face, right after the final verses, be exalted, O Lord, in your softness. In your strength, we will sing and praise your power. Okay? Come, lead us.